Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 32. This is the word of God. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Let us go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father God, we ask that you use this word this morning to unsettle those of us who are comfortable and make comfortable those who are unsettled. Please uh, use the pouring out of your word through the power of your spirit. This passage in Ephesians to bless our life, and to bless how we live and go about living. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is this pub uh, located next to uh, Oxford University, which of course is one of the world's most prestigious, if not the most prestigious university, and it's called the Bears Inn. And the Bears Inn has been open since the 1200s, and um, the rule goes in the Bears Inn that if you walk in with a tie, they snip it off and they put it on the wall. And the reason they did this is they found that over and over again, they you know, they get that high fluid intellectual type walk into their pub acting like he was better than anyone else. And so it's a little bit, it was a, to serve as a reminder that here in this place, in this tavern, we're, we're all in the same boat here. None of us is, is better than another. And as someone who's been wrestling with this verse all week, and just at times, and reflecting about, back on my week, feeling the great hypocrite that I often can't be, um, this sermon and this text really needs us, at the beginning, to enter the sanctuary, and in one sense, snip off our ties. The force us to not just sit here and go, oh, I, I know someone who needs to hear this, this message or hear this passage, because the person is actually the person staring right back at you in the mirror. It's us. We need to all hear this message. So right off the bat, we, we just want to be mindful of that. We don't want to be going through this passage thinking of someone else, but we really want to be mindful of ourselves, because God cares quite a bit about His Word and how we use our own words. And this really shouldn't surprise us, because the God whom we worship created the entire universe through the power of His words. We even refer to Him as the Word, or the Word made flesh. So it's to be a little surprise that our God, the Word made flesh, who dwells among us, cares what we, His representatives here on earth, do and say. As evidenced in the very earliest pages of Scripture, words have the power to bring forth either glorious and abundant new life, or words have the power to deceive and to curse and to uh, 
really create humanity's first great dilemma. In one sense, if humanity had been more mindful, our first parents had been more mindful to respect the word, to abide by God's life-giving words, we wouldn't have to be in the situation where we needed the Savior that we should so enjoy today. And so as we look at our passage today, we begin by appreciating the fact that the words we carry can either be life-giving or they can be life-taking throughout the body of Christ. Our passage begins with a description on how God plans the Christian speech to be. The ESV reads as follows, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Now, what is corrupting talk? Well, the word corrupting there is associated with the idea of spoiled or even rotten food. It was the word the Gentile would use, for instance, if they were in the marketplace and someone was selling something that has long past its date. We've all had those rotten food moments where, oh, oh, oh that snake, oh, get, get, that, get that out of here. We have the Park household, of course. We've been having car problems of the late, and so I have too many car illustrations in this sermon. But I was thinking back on, I don't even think my wife's going to know this one, by the way, the first great car dilemma that Stephanie and Kevin had together. And the car dilemma was this. Her car in college began to stink. It really stank. It, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And occasionally, you know, this is my girlfriend, we occasionally drive together. And she would be the one occasionally doing the driving. And it just got to the point where, uh, you know, first I'm trying to find, what is this that stinks? You know, I, I think I couldn't find it. I'm thinking you got to rip up all your carpets or something, do a deep clean. And it got to the point where I, I told this girlfriend of mine, uh, "You are banned from driving us anywhere. Your car stinks too much. I will not drive it." Well, it turns out that what happened was she had to give a whole host of potatoes by her stepfather. And one of the potatoes somehow had like wedged under her chair, underneath kind of the uh, metal nature of the, the chair itself. You couldn't see it with the naked eye. It was one of those things you just had to like grab and trust blindly. And it was this rotten potato that had first been put in in the winter. And as the seasons began to warm and warm and, and, and seasons change and, and warmth comes, stink fell upon her automobile. And so, and yet, once you found it, of course, that wedge potato, it dissipated. In one sense, our words, and this is only going to reach some of you, but our words, when we fail to guard, safeguard them, we're a little bit like Walter Matthau, one of the old men who drops the, the fish in the back of Jack Lemon's car. We metaphorically, often with our words drop rotten or spoiled comments from time to time in the lap of another. And God doesn't want our words to be like that. To leave a lingering, lingering, unpleasant stench that's hard to get rid of. Notice this isn't saying we can't say 
hard words to someone. It doesn't, it's not saying we can't even have difficult conversations, but the words are not to be the kind of words used that ultimately corrupt or spoil someone. They're supposed to be, according to the Word of God here, good for building something. Good for building. A wonderful thought. If we picked up the phone, if we sent the text, and responded to someone, and we had the ability to always remember, is this good for building something? And what's the opposite of building something? It's tearing something down. At humanity's worst, we're like out of control wrecking balls with our words. We give up on building altogether. Yesterday, I was out in the graveyard with Bruce Stocking's son, who has the incredibly hard name to memorize of Bruce. So, you know, good, good news, Bruce Blasdale that these out this week, so we don't have three Bruce in the building. But, <laughs> but he's a surveyor, correct, Bruce surveyor, and he has all these gadgets and tools, and he was doing some work out in the cemetery, and then he took those tools, and eventually he lined up on the church. And he really got two angles from the church. The first angle was this angle right here on the corner. That was set in place in 1915. And sure enough, it's a perfect 90 degrees. That angle is, is 100 plus years after the fact, still one point. Then he set up where? On what angle? Come on, you all know it. The steeple. If you haven't figured it out yet, yes, we do have the leaning steeple of Old Gosh and Hoppin. Uh, minus great Italian food around it. Uh, but no, um, so we had it. And sure enough, as we scan the steeple from far distance off, it is not plumb. It is not 90 degrees. The good news is Bruce told me he had been up in the steeple already for some suffers, not for stopping. Uh, he had told me, in your lifetime, it's probably never going to need to be fixed. So I'm like, yes, that's great news. That's fantastic. That's what I want to hear. Um, but yeah, maybe someday, eventually, it, it might need to be repaired. I would guess whenever that time comes, if that time comes, they're not going to. You wouldn't want to see them take a wrecking ball to the entire church. You would want them to fix that specific problem. And yet what we do with our words, when we're not careful with our words, is often we'll just take a wholesale wrecking ball. We don't want to do that. God doesn't want us to be wrecking balls, metaphorically, ripping things down. And yet, He wants us to be people who are more fine-tuned than that. You want to see what wrecking ball language is like? Go to the fourth most visited website. Really, don't go on the entire internet, which is Twitter. I mean, nobody escapes from that place unscathed. It's just wrecking ball comment after wrecking ball comment after wrecking ball comment. God doesn't want us to be wrecking balls. Metaphorically speaking, with our words, he wants us to be builders. And the verse continues with stating we are to build people up as fits the occasion. And as that fits the occasion there, I think really what... Paul has in mind is a little bit like Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which maybe if you don't know that offhand, you do know that probably the birds hit, turn, turn, turn. There is a season. That there are different seasons where the kinds of words we use might change due to situation or severity or topic. 
These all come into play, and we should pick our words wisely and accordingly for those occasions. And yet, regardless of the occasion, the ultimate purpose of our words should be to give grace to those who hear them and to build them up. I love how King James puts it. It, said, it states it this way, Our goal should be that our words may minister grace to the hearers. That basically, as, as this chapter has been talking about, we're all called into ministry, and thus all our words should minister to those who hear them. Now, of course, we are people of the Reformation. We are Protestants. And so when God asks us to be grace-laden in our words, one of the beautiful things for us to remember about grace is that grace isn't something to be earned. Again, this isn't Paul saying, speak nicely to those who are easy to speak nicely to. He's saying, speak nicely to those who are hard to love. Don't, he doesn't say, speak only nicely to those who have earned the right. Grace doesn't work that way. If you, and if you don't believe me, all you have to do is go back to the first two chapters of Ephesians, which makes clear as any other how grace works. If you can only speak graciously to the clique of people in your world that are most like you, and you appreciate and don't annoy you, you're not doing anything remarkable. You're not doing really the kind of thing this passage is going to you. That's not how grace works. God gives grace to his enemies. We can see this, for instance, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And then as we reach verse 230, it tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I think, you know, movies like Star Wars have destroyed our first image of the Holy Spirit. We think of the Holy Spirit as a force, but the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is personable. I remember at times as a kid, there would be people around, I want to say something to my sibling, you know, I want to kind of give them a verbal hit in the head. And yet, maybe dad was there, or my grandmothers were there. And because their presence was there, I would not say it. And ironically, I would usually not say it for two reasons. I wouldn't say it around my father because I didn't want to be spanked. And if I said something like that around my father, he was going to spank me. But I wouldn't want to say it around my two grandmothers because they were so kind to me, and so godly, and such wonderful women that I wouldn't want to so grieve them. And actually, the kind of grieving that Paul has in mind here is not the threat of getting whacked upside the head or swatted on the bottom kind of fear. It's saying, don't you realize in one sense how kind God has been to you, how gracious God has been to you, how good God's grace is for you? Why do you want to act like that in His presence? Why do you want to do that? Closer to the, the kind of grandmotherly moment. God wants us to resist talking to people in such an ugly manner because we love Him, His presence, and His grace so much. And in one sense, what we are doing in our speech is a little bit like those special cars for student drivers, you know, the kinds with two steering wheels. Where the student finds that when the student finds himself in a troubling situation, they're supposed to allow the other person, the experienced driver, to take over, to, to, to go to their leading, let them direct them. But what do we often do? We actually fight 
I mean, head to the worst kind of places in the cars that we can go to, resisting God's instruction. We head down gossip alley. We take a right, maybe, at the first word corridor. We keep going down to Old Insult Drive and finally a left at Liar Road. And then there's a wreck on the road of our relationships that God has for us. Because all along the way, we've been crashing into things in how we speak. We're not supposed to enjoy driving in such ways. We need to heed the stop sign that should be the person and presence of God. But if that stop sign doesn't compel you, let me just read this verse. One really, truly, really two verses, but one of the most frightening verses if you really consider them in all of Scripture. Come from Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. Jesus said the following, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Each careless word will be accounted for in the day of judgment. And so we as people need grace. We need to at this point say, as we desperately need grace, we desperately need God's mercy, and we really need to strive to change how we deal with one another. And then we get to verse 31. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, some theologians take this verse and they try to make this a sliding scale. They try to say each term is slightly worse than the one that preceded it. I don't see it. I see these as the fuses. That light, kind of those moments, often are the trigger points or the, the, the fuse that, that lights, that sparks us being careless with our words. And so let's go over these fuses together. The first one is bitterness. Of course, when something is bitter, it doesn't taste right to us at first taste. We kind of pucker up and we make those faces. Like I'm sure, I know there's that apple cider craze, you know, where... Uh, I've tried it at times. Maybe it's okay, maybe if you water it down, but some of you probably do it. Can you turn the apple cider in? Rose, there you go. There you go. Um, yeah, it, like the straight shot of apple cider, I don't care how many times I've had it, every time it's like, at first it just takes you. These moments, when it's talking about bitterness, it's talking about kind of those moments that take you from surprise that. Uh, we kind of give an uh, initial disapproval, we, we, uh, and we lose control of our words when bitter. When we experience something, it just didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And instead of moving on, we, we carry on about it, and we complain about it. You know, let's pretend that apple cider is vinegar is a person. And I you know, biologically, I've taken the biology my life, that's not possible, but just hear me out. Imagine if, for instance, I just start carrying on for like five apple cider vinegar. I taste so awful, I can't stand it. I don't even know how to sell it in store. And I just keep going on and on and on in bitterness about it all. We as Christians are we say, stop, stop. We're not called to be bitter. We're not called to just kind of carry on just because we didn't like it. The taste of something at first, just because it didn't meet our kind of 
about the moment. All these complaints uh, about apple cider vinegar, there's no rule that says you have to complain about apple cider vinegar when you take, taste it. That's just something, that's a decision that's made. And that's something that God wants us to give rest. The next is wrath. And the wrath being so spoken about here is in the singular, it's, it's, it's wrath with inside us. When we get furious with somebody else, that's another fuse, but I'm going to quickly move into the third one. The next, next to wrath is anger. And at first, it seems that anger is the same thing as wrath. It isn't, though. Wrath, actually, in, in the sense of the word here, is a short fuse kind of anger. You boil hot, and then, okay, after you boil hot, you calm down. That's wrath. Whereas this upset word here is different in the Greek. It is long-term. This is a long fuse. It is a prolonged kind of rage that lasts for extended periods of time. And there's almost this ongoing kind of bullying nature to it. In the Greek here, uh, it's, just, it's just like, give it an end. It's almost like when you're trying to plan. You're so mad about something. You're trying to plan or in your words and how you speak for the demise of another. How about the views of clamor that Paul talks about? Clamor is more the idea that we aren't taking care to say the thing, say things in a way that they can be received well. Clamor is almost more about how we say things rather than what we're saying. We can be guilty of clamor even if we're right. So this is like a popular one with us parents, right? We, we, we are parenting something that needs to be parented in the moment. And yet we are saying it in a way which is just not helpful, not beneficial, not worthwhile. It's, it, it's not that if you clamor, you're not also doing right or wrong. It's, it's, it's less concerned with that. It's more about how we're saying the thing to be said. So this is even the loud sighs, the rolling eyes, yelling, etc., Giving ourselves to these kinds of clamor, these kinds of sin, allowing them to set us off is not good. Then there is slander. Slander are words of exaggeration. We know are not fully true, or outright false, or designed to basically utterly destroy another's reputation. And honestly, because slander often is designed to destroy the reputation of another, uh, slander often, most often, happens when an offended party, the offended party being offended, is not present. They're not even able to provide or amount to defense of what's being said. And we can make ourselves hospitable to slander both by sharing it or listening to it. Augustine, in desiring to be tempted less to slander, actually, at one point in his life, put a sign over his table that said the following, He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. Which, Augustine, of course, in his own confessions, was willing to admit he, at times, was not, in theory, welcome at his own table. But the principle of it all that Augustine had there was a noble. It's unfair to criticize someone in a way where they don't have the opportunity to defend themselves. The last fuse is malice. Now, malice is the one term here that I think the ESV kind of just, I, I, I think it's poorly translated here. I think a better way to translate malice here is 
nastiness. Stay away from nastiness. There's actually a sense in the stay away from the truly depraved things in the world. We live in an age where it is far, far too easy to encounter uh, nasty things in this world. And we need to really be on guard because for ourselves and our souls to, to not uh, embrace this kind of deep dive in those things. Um, honestly, there's, so all of this, we need to just be mindful of. We need to try to remove these kinds of fuses from our life. Because these kinds of fuses, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and just malice or general nastiness, we keep these kinds of things close at hands in our lives. How are we going to be able to reach out and embrace the critical moments? How do we embrace such things and really be appreciating the fact that the presence of God is found in a person in us? And he is grieved when we act like this or embrace these sorts of things. You know, they say that when it comes to skydiving, at first your stomach lurches, and I'm sure some of you might even know what it feels like, but at about 120 miles an hour, all of a sudden you just feel like you're floating. You, you become so, you know, you kind of maxed out that speed, and once you hit that speed, it just feels like floating. And I think sometimes, as our, our, our mouths and the things we say get out of control, we at times can feel like we're floating and, and just carrying on with life, and yet we're not appreciating the fact that pride goes before the fall, that we're still, if we're not careful, hurling down towards the ground, and so we need to pull the ripcord from time to time in order to slow us down. And in one sense, then Paul, in this final verse, gives us the ripcord. The kinds of things that help slow us down. And by the way, Paul was known for a hot temper. <laughs> Paul, Paul gets into such an argument in one sense with John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, that uh, he wants nothing to do with him for a season of his life. And so Paul offers us in Ephesians in this letter three things that can help slow us down. When the fuses have been lit, maybe the fuses have already gone off. Maybe we've jumped off the airplane, our stomach has already lurched, or maybe we've even gotten comfortable and we're just floating in this perpetual sense of saying things that are unworthy of our life. And the first is that we are to remember that God wants us to be kind to Him. And that again, God is the kindly person in the room. He's more kind than my, my grandmothers, even though, you know, in, in this life it's, it's hard to beat them. They were very sweet when very different, but very sweet man. He takes no joy in seeing two of his children, especially believers, seek out how awful that is for the Holy Spirit to see two believers fighting with one another. He wants us to be kind to one another, just as he has been kind to us. But also, God wants us to be tender-hearted. And, and don't think he, he has the easiest people in mind for us to be tender-hearted to. The truly tender-hearted person develops an ability to love the person they find most off-putting. You know, uh, I say this plenty of times, but it needs further repeating. In large part, we're all a group of oddballs here, all very different, all, you know, tremendously weird in our own rights. 
And yet God wants us to be kind to another one another. He brought us together as with one another in order that we love one another. And that we sometimes struggle to love one another and still love one another, and sometimes just have sheer joy in loving one another and grow. Churches are supposed to be the place where the 99-year-old and the 5-year-old can find common ground. Or even, which is so sad in our society, the person from this background and the person of that background can find common ground through the precious gift of Jesus Christ, through the shared spirit that we all have, where there is no Jew or Gentile. We all are to share in tender-hearted unity, not hitting ourselves against one another. And lastly, of course, as always, we must remember Christ. We must remember the joy of the Father, the one who came to the joy of the perfect gift of the Father, the one who came to save. Because Jesus, our Lord, drank down the bitter vinegar poured out upon him. He is the one who embraced the momentary wrath upon the cross. He is the one who suffered the long anger of all his enemies aligned against him who desired to undo him. He is the one who ignored the crowd's constant clamoring and utterances and frustrations against him. He is the one that did not lash back at the slanderous and abusive attacks that both Jew and Gentile poured out upon him. And just the general nastiness and human depravity of life did not cause him to forsake us or his father, most importantly his father. Our Lord weathered it all, each and every fuse, which we are often uh, tempted to explode when we face in his mortal human body for 33 years, never lashing out, out of season or in season, but taking on it all, so that you and I, people who at the beginning of the sermon needed to cut off the tie to remove it, admitting that we are lumped into the same bowl of judgment as everybody else, his once enemies, could become something new, his treasure, his precious personal possession that he delights to be in the presence of, because we have been made to look like him Good news, Christian. Christ has saved us through the life-giving power of his word. Let us then be found, striving likewise, to build up and to give life in the words we offer and say unto others, as a thankful people who love his glorious grace. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, as we come to a close of these verses, of chapter 4 of Ephesians. We thank you that even though we can see in our own lives, our words are often not life-giving. They are wrecking balls. That you offer us the saving, redemptive power of Jesus Christ. That through the word of God we can begin to be restored and rebuilt and made into people who shine your likeness out upon this world. Help us, Lord. Help us to fight the fuses that so often set off our mouths and the things we say. Help us to have courage to love boldly and wisely and broadly. Help us to be a peaceable people like your Son was for us. We thank you for his precious gift and help us to live like he did. 
through the power of your spirit. He asks us to do something. Amen.